Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. All right, well, Shabbat Shalom. In commemoration of Pesach, uh, I'd like us to look today at the famous Song at the Sea, which Rusty has been leading us in for the last several weeks, also known as the Song of Moses from from Shemot, from Exodus chapter 15. And the the theme in particular of Adonai Ish Nochama, the Lord is a man of war. The Song at the Sea is the first recorded song of the nation of Israel. Uh, So let's start with some background first uh, in Exodus 14, beginning in verse 26. And we have it on the overhead before we launch into into the song uh, itself. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it. And the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and the horsemen and the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power that the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. This now leads into the song of Moses. This song or hymn has a prologue and an epilogue. The prologue is Exodus 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he's thrown into the sea. The epilogue is at the end, uh, Exodus 15, verse 21. And Miriam answered them, Sing the Lord, for he's triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider He's thrown into the sea. Notice how the end of the song echoes the beginning uh, in classic Hebraic uh, poetic symmetry. Uh, The prologue introduces the overall theme of the song, and the epilogue repeats it uh, and reiterates it. Uh, On the overhead, uh, the hymn is roughly divided into three stanzas. The first stanza is verse 1 to 6, the Lord is a man of war. The second stanza, verses 7 to 11, the Lord has defeated his foe. And the third stanza, verses 12 to 16, the Lord has chosen Israel as his own. Each, and each stanza ends with the, the phrase, O Lord. Uh, and near the, end, near the end of each stanza, there's a simile. So in the overhead, we have uh, verse 5, like a stone, verse 10, like lead, verse 16, again, like a stone. So we have this visual imagery uh, in the song. In the original Hebrew, this song, if you, can, if you can read it or sing it in the Hebrew, you'll see it has a distinct meter uh, and poetic style uh, and, and rhythm and pattern. Uh, and in each stanza, there's a, there's a point being made, a point being made about the Lord and his redemption of his people. So let's now start verse by verse through the song. We'll start with the, with the prologue, Exodus 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider is thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I'll exalt him. We see this parallelism 
throughout the song where one line repeats the theme of a prior line but using different language. This is called synonymous parallelism and it's a hallmark of Hebrew poetry. Notice also that Israel's praise of God uh, on the seashore was immediate and spontaneous. Exodus 15, 1 again, again, we'll just look at this. Then, it says, then Moses, right after they crossed, it said, then Moses and the children of Israel sang the song to the Lord. The song occurs immediately after the crossing of the Red Sea and, and, and the Lord's defeat of the Egyptians. The song was written right after it happened. It was not composed years later. It was written on the banks of the Red Sea in response to the Lord's miracle. On the overhead, notice the order. First, Israelites saw God save them. Second, they put their trust in him as savior. And third, they sang to his glory. In fact, that's the overriding theme of the entire book of Exodus. The Israelites were saved for the glory of God on the overhead. And the song of the sea was their spontaneous, jubilant response to his grace. Like all true worship, this was a response. We respond to God in praise and worship for all he has done for us. And our praise brings his presence. So you read in Psalm 22, verse 3. You, Lord, are, are holy. You're enthroned on the praises of Israel. Another translation says, God inhabits the praises of his people. Praise, like we see here in the Song of the Sea, is inherently connected to God's presence. And indeed, is a means for us entering into his presence. The Holy Spirit makes God's presence known in praise and worship, such that we can truly encounter God in a powerful way. You know, when the temple stood, the sacrifices were these tangible means of grace. Uh, and God uh, used the sacrifices to draw his people near to him, draw, him them near, draw us near experientially and relationally. Indeed, the Hebrew word for sacrifice, korban, is related to the, to the verb to draw near, karov, from the same root. Now, we have no animal sacrifices today, but we're commanded in Hebrews 13:15 uh, through Yeshua, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly praise his name. On the overhead, praise and worship is here equated with sacrifice. That, that is, it's a tangible means through which God reveals himself and enables us to experience his presence. Uh, again, on the overhead. Technically, praise and worship are distinct. Praise is the vehicle of expression that brings us into God's presence, whereas worship is what we do once we enter his presence. Uh, on the overhead, uh, one writer puts it like this. Uh, praise is thanksgiving. Uh, is praise is thanking God for the blessings for what he's done. It's an expression of love, gratitude, and appreciation. Worship involves a more intense level of personal communion with God centering on his person. Another, writer, another writer, writer puts it like this one more time on the overhead. Praise begins by applauding God's power, whereas worship responds to God's presence. Where the energy of praise is toward what God has done, the energy of worship is towards who God is. The first concerns his deeds in history, while the second focuses on his person. True praise and worship thus creates an expectation of encountering the Lord. It's uh, active and present through his spirit. Indeed, the spirit is present through true praise and worship. And here at the Song of the Sea, we see this dynamic at work with Israel responding in spontaneous praise and worship, uh, both to who God is 
and to what he's done. Uh, and very importantly, Israel's worship was rooted in their covenant relationship with God. Uh, and likewise, this is where our worship must be rooted as well. So let's go on. Exodus 15, verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. That is covenant language. And in response, Israel says, he's my God and I'll praise him. My father's God and I'll exalt him. Covenant language is just dripping all over this verse. So on, on the next slide. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, why are we worshiping the Lord? Because he's God. Uh, because he's my God. Because he's my father's God. Which is a reference, by the way, to our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Exodus 2, verse 23. Now it happened in the process of time. The king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out. And their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered. By the way, this Hebrew word remembered means, doesn't mean that God had forgotten. The Hebrew word remembered means God's about to act. Then God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God remembered them. Why did God rescue Israel? Because of his covenant relationship with them. Because of the Abrahamic covenant. Not because they cried out more than other peoples. Not because of their merit. But because of his covenant relationship with them. This is where our worship must be rooted and grounded. In our covenant relationship with God. Uh, through the Brit Hadashah, through the new covenant promised in Jeremiah 31. And consummated in Yeshua. When in his last Pesach Seder, he lifted up the third cup. The cup of redemption. And in Luke 22, 20... He says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. And no, true worship is about who God was and who God is and who God always will be, regardless of my present circumstances. Uh, true worship praises God for who he is and what he's done, even in the face of sickness or, or death of a loved one, or you've had a fight with your spouse or with your parents or with your children on the way to shul. Now, uh, of course, I'm sure no one here has ever experienced that, anything like that. But I've heard at other congregations, there are people who sometimes have had an argument in the car all the way up to the parking lot. And as soon as the car went into park, they put their smiles on. <laughs> I've heard that. Well, what's your worship like then? What do you do then? Is God no longer good? Is the Lord no longer worthy to be praised because you had a bad day? Or does the worthiness of God to be worshipped transcend our momentary feelings? The Lord inhabits the praises of his people. And the song continues after this prologue, Exodus 15, verse 3. The Lord is a man of war. Adonai is his name. Now this verse, people hate this verse because this verse flies in the face of much of what we in, in our modern society Believe about God. It flies in the face. If you listen to the namby-pamby, mealy-mouthed, watered-down versions of who Yeshua is today and who God is today, God the Father is today, or what Messianic faith is supposed to be today, you'll be told the 11th commandment is thou shalt be nice. And we don't believe the first 10. <laughs> so this verse just flies in the face of that. We live in a day and age where if you dare to speak against sin, you'll be attacked for the sin of not being nice. Exodus 15, verse 3. The Lord is a man of war. Adonai is his name. Western society, deal with it. 
Verse 4, Exodus 15, verse 4. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. That's the, uh, there's that ending with, on the stanza again with the phrase, O Lord. And I'll be forward that reference to the imagery of a stone. Now, are most modern believers okay with this very military, militant imagery? No. <laughs> we like to say, I worship God because he loves me. I worship God because he's gentle. I worship God because he's kind. I worship God because he's patient. And by the way, all of that is true. But when's the last time you said, I worship you, Lord, because you are a man of war? <laughs> That's scriptural also. Sadly, we're so far removed from this biblical truth today that many of us, many believers, are uncomfortable saying this because our woke culture hates this reality. We've all bought the lie and drunk the Kool-Aid of an effeminate, emasculated Yeshua to some degree. Now, now many liberal Christian groups try to minimize this truth of, of the Lord as a man of war by saying, well, yeah, that was the Old Testament. <laughs> Uh, that might have been what God was like back then in the Old Testament. But the God of the New Testament, well, he's kinder and gentler. He walks around with little lambs on his shoulders. <laughs> but this is the first of many references to God as a man of war and to spiritual warfare. Uh, this poem, Sung at the Sea, represents the first explicit warlike statement of the nature of God, but it's by far the last statement in the Scriptures. This theme of the Lord as a warrior became a frequent refrain throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. Exodus itself became a, a key archetype throughout the Bible. Uh, it's a means of telling and retelling God's acts of deliverance. So let's respond to the critics uh, and ask, is, is God warlike in the New Covenant Scriptures as well? Definitely. Let's start with the Gospels. One of the things you run into time and again in the Gospels, over and over again, is Yeshua confronting the demons. And he's warlike in these confrontations. He vanquishes them as his foe. Yeshua is a warrior. Speaking of spiritual warfare, look at 2 Corinthians 10 and Ephesians 6. Both make it clear that we, as Messianic believers, we are engaged, whether you like it or not, we are engaged in spiritual war, in a spiritual battle. You better believe that our God is still a man of war. What about the book of Revelation on the overhead? Revelation 19, verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many crowns. He has a name written that no one knows except himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. His armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of the Almighty God. He has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah. Yeshua is a man of war. We worship a man of war. And note this, his divine justice and judgment are coming. 
Now, on a fallen human level, we're told not for ourselves to be angry or to vent our wrath, but we're told this in James 1.19. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, but slow to speak and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. But there's a huge difference between divine wrath and human anger. Divine wrath is always holy. God's wrath is always holy anger against sin. Uh, and if God is not a man of war against sin, we've got a problem. Uh, because then we'd have a God who's no longer holy. His holiness demands that he wars against sin. That he pours out his wrath on evil. Now, God is not moved by uncontrollable passions uh, the way that we are. God's anger is not like our anger. God's anger is calculated and purposeful, never out of control. And God is a righteous judge who is able and worthy to punish justly. Look at Psalm 96, verse 11. Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the seas roar in all, the, all its fullness, let the fields be joyful in all that's in them, then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord. Why? Why is all creation rejoicing? For he is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. And God says this in Romans 12, 19. Beloved, uh, don't avenge yourselves, but rather leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. The reason God says this is because you and I are not holy. Uh, we don't have the right to exact God's vengeance on anyone else. And, and secondly, even if we did exact vengeance, how would you know how much vengeance is just? You don't. But God does. And as a man of war, he acts justly and rightly. Indeed, if God were, if God were not a man of war, he couldn't save us. He couldn't redeem us. If God were not a man of war, he could not defeat our foes and our enemies. If God were not a man of war, our salvation would not be secure. If God were not a man of war, heaven would not be a secure place because others could come in and plunder. But because God is a man of war, I know that I'm saved in Messiah Yeshua because he is able to save to the uttermost. Hallelujah. Hebrews 7, verse 24. But Yeshua, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he's also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. I know that heaven is secure because none can overrun his boundaries. <laughs> I know that sin will be dealt with because I know that God is ruthless in his wrath as he pours it out against sin. Adonai ish milchama. God is a man of war. And in his war, he defeats his foes. Always and completely. Exodus 15, verse 7, next verse. And in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. Now, now notice in this song, Moses doesn't say, in the greatness of your wrath or in the greatness of your anger. But the text says, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. God's adversaries are overthrown because of the greatness of his majesty. Exodus 15, 7, you send forth your fury and consume them like stubble. Uh, this reference to stubble, it actually points back to Exodus 5, uh, verse 10. It says, So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw, 
Go get yourself straw where you can find it. Yet none of your work will be reduced. So the people were scattered abroad throughout the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. The Egyptians made the Israelites gather stubble, and so mita kenega mita, measure for measure, God has now reduced the Egyptian army to stubble. Exodus 15, verse 8. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters gathered together. The flood stood up like a heap. Uh, the depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, here's Pharaoh speaking now, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. Uh, my desire will have their fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall, shall destroy them. What does that remind you of? Notice how Pharaoh's prideful and arrogant, I will, I will, I will statements, I'll, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide, I will draw the sword, I will, I, will, I will divide plunder. This parallels Satan's statements from Isaiah 14, verse 12. Look at Isaiah 14. How you are fallen, on the next, verse, uh, next slide, Isaiah 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. How you said, how you Satan said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Pharaoh is a type of the anti-Messiah and Satan. Same egotistical language used, almost identical language in Exodus 15 and Isaiah 14. Next verse, Isaiah 15, verse 10. You blew with, with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O God, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, awesome in praises, doing wonders? Michamocha, who is like you? Notice how the second stanza of the psalm begins and ends with the majesty of God. And the final outcome of the war that our God is fighting, that final outcome is never in question. Our God is a man of war. And every war he fights, he wins. Who is like you, O Lord? There is none like our God. Egypt opposed God, defied God, and he judged them. Pharaoh boasted, I will pursue and overtake and destroy Israel. And God's response, Exodus 15, 10 and 12, you blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. And look at Exodus 15, verse 11. It tells us God responded because he is holy. Who is like you, glorious in holiness? The Lord did not deliver Israel because they were good, but he delivered them because they were his. God doesn't fight his wars on behalf of the highest bidder. God fights his wars on behalf of himself. He fought this war on, on, on the behalf of Israel because they were on his side. They were his covenant people. He calls them my firstborn son. Uh, they're corporately a type of Messiah, God's for only, for only begotten son. He's the perfect one-man representative of Israel. That's Chaim. The only way to be sure that the Lord will fight for you is for you to be on his side. And we see that when Israel was not on God's side, and they rebelled against the Lord, he actively fought against them. Look at Numbers 25.3. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Look at the Shoftim Judges 2.14. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, 
So he delivered them into the hands of the plunderers who despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around. So they could no longer stand before their enemies. Israel is not God's chosen people because they're always holy and righteous. Israel is God's chosen people because of his covenant uh, with our forefathers, Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. And the fact that we're his covenant people doesn't mean we're always on his side. So throughout the history of our people, sadly, there were times when Israel was in rebellion against God, and so God was against them. So just being Jewish is not a guarantee of the Lord always being on your side. But being an heir of Abraham, an heir of Abraham according to the Spirit, that's a different story altogether. If you're in Messiah, it doesn't, doesn't make you a Jew, uh, but it does mean that you're adopted into God's family and you're part of the commonwealth of Israel. This is why we, we need one who can deliver us and pay for our sins. Otherwise, we too remain enemies of God. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says this, And you he made alive, you who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, among whom also we once conducted ourselves, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who's rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Messiah. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit in heavenly places in Messiah Yeshua. Hallelujah. It's by grace we're saved and we're made God's friends and no longer his enemy. No longer the object of his wrath. So God, as a man of war, wars against sin and unrighteousness. In our sin nature, as natural-born sinners, we're at first inherently enemies of God. And so by nature, we're under God's wrath. But the miracle is, this God who's a man of war, he delivers us. Messiah Yeshua, through his crucifixion and resurrection, delivers us. Because of the work of Yeshua on the cross, 2 Corinthians 5.21, now God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. As you read in Isaiah 53, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray, each turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all, even as Joey recited for us, the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. God the Father pours out his wrath on Messiah, who became our sin offering, our guilt offering, so that all of us who repent and submit our lives to Yeshua can be delivered from God's justice and his judgment. And now the Lord, as a man of war, instead of fighting against us, fights for us because we're found in Yeshua. Which also means if you are apart from Yeshua, there is nothing you can do to protect yourself against this man of war because sin must be judged. Either it's judged in Messiah or apart from him, we bear the judgment for our sin because God cannot ignore his justice and he cannot wink at sin. So you must pay for your sins unless there's one who bears it for you, unless there's one who delivers you from this man of war. And the only one who can do that is Yeshua himself. Now next we see in the Song of the Sea that God has chosen Israel as his own. Look at verse 13, Exodus 15, 13. And in your mercy, you led forth this people whom you've redeemed. You guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid, and anguish will take hold of who? All the inhabitants of Philistia, 
Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan, Canaan, will, will melt away. Fear and dread will fall upon them. But the greatness of your arm, they'll be, they'll be still as a stone. Till your people pass over, O Lord. Till the people pass over whom you have redeemed, have purchased. We first see God's action against his enemies. Look at Exodus 15, 12. You stretch out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. Let me see God's affection for Israel. Exodus 15, verse 13. You led with steadfast love the people who you've redeemed. So God is not only a man of war, he's also a man of love. And verse 13 continues, you guided them by your strength, your holy abode. Interestingly, Israel hasn't come, even come to the promised land yet. And yet the song here says, you guided them into your holy abode. Why? Because his holy abode is wherever his presence is. And then God's coming judgment on the current inhabitants of the land of Israel are now foretold in this song. Uh, Philistia, Edom, Moab, uh, Canaan. The song tells us here these peoples are going to hear all about God's mighty deliverance of his people. And they will be terrified. Because they know that God has promised the children of Israel this land. And this man of war will fulfill his promises. And verse 16 says he'll do it by his arm, his Zeroah in Hebrew. The same word we use for, for the Pesach shank bone of the lamb, the Zeroah of, the, of Adonai, uh, a messianic reference. And let me see God's people on the march. Look at Exodus 15, 16. To your people, O Lord, pass over. To the people pass over whom you've redeemed, whom you've purchased. This is us. We are God's people on the march. We see here a classic Hebraic already, but not yet. That's the theme here. People of Israel, they're already in his abode because they're in his presence, and yet they're st we're still on the march. Until your people pass by, that's us. We're already in his presence, in his kingdom, and yet we still pray your kingdom come. We recognize this already but not yet uh, biblical tension. We recognize that, that we're redeemed and victorious, and yet the last battle has not yet been fought. We recognize that, that, we're, that we're in Messiah, and Messiah is in us, and yet we still long for the new Jerusalem. We recognize we've been redeemed, and yet we also will be redeemed. This is the same reality we find here in the text, this already but not yet tension. As we worship God, we worship in the midst of this already but not yet tension. Uh, we long for heaven, but yet we also want to be faithful to what God has called us to do here on earth. That's this already but not yet tension. We long for the return of Messiah to judge the living and the dead. And then we recognize he does not yet have the fullness of the reward for which he died. The full number of souls has not yet entered his kingdom. And especially not yet the full number of Jewish souls. The scriptures promise us in Romans 11 that we'll put their faith in Yeshua in the last days. Where it says, and so all Israel shall be saved. And so on the one hand, we say, Maranatha, come Lord Yeshua. On the other hand... Before he does so, our desire is for every soul possible to come to faith and to look upon the one who they've been pierced uh, and to be redeemed. And so we live with this tension. And then finally, we come to the epilogue. Look at Exodus 15, 17 on the overhead. You bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, in the place O Lord, which you've made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have made. The Lord will reign forever and ever. From the horses of Pharaoh, with his chariots and horsemen, went into the sea. 
the Lord brought them, brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. And now here comes the epilogue. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out with her with timbrels and with dance. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider, he's thrown into the sea. In this epilogue, we, see now, we, see, we now see the introduction of Miriam uh, and the women. The song of salvation is for everyone, for men and for women alike. And in the ancient Near East, this prominent mention of the women what was highly unusual. And note that the song that the women sang in verse 21 was exactly the same as the men sang back in verse 1. Because all people need the same thing, a redeemer to redeem them. And as we've seen in our series on Mark, when, when Yeshua was resurrected, the first ones to see them, to see him, were the women. So we see in this epilogue this classic Hebraic repetition of the prologue to reemphasize the main theme of the song. It's all about God, who he is, what he's done, how he has redeemed his people. And, and why did he redeem them? So that they were to worship him. What happened when they redeemed him? As we've seen in the song, they worshiped him. What characterizes, what characterizes them after they've been redeemed? Worship. This is what characterizes God's redeemed people. We worship him. And now we gather together to worship him corporately as a people. We're called to gather together corporately every week. Not just to show up once a month or, or, or once every few months when we feel like it, but we are called to gather corporately every Shabbat to worship the Lord together. This is the type of covenant people Adonai calls us to be. We're called to be a worshiping people. We're the redeemed who are called to worship our Redeemer, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of our feelings, whether we're up or down, joyful or sorrowful, excited or, or tranquil. This is who we are and what we're called to do. We are the redeemed who are called to worship our Redeemer. This is who we are, and that's why we do what we do. Yeshua tells the woman at the well, John 4, verse 23, the hour is now coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. God is seeking worshipers today. He's not only seeking sinners to save. He's seeking worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. This is whom we were created to be and to do. When we understand what Yeshua has done to deliver us from our sin, when we only understand that apart from him, we deserve to be the, in the second group that went into the Red Sea, not the first group. It's at that moment when we realize his mercy and grace upon us that is that moment we enter into true worship. But if we believe we're pretty good, and certainly better than most, and that we try really hard, and therefore God needs to honor us, if that is our attitude, we will never worship anyone but ourselves. But when you understand that your sin deserved for you to be thrown into the bottom of the Red Sea like a stone, and yet Messiah saved you, when you understand that and it becomes real to you, then you worship. Amen.
Let's stand and pray with the music team to come on up. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Thank you for this amazing song celebrating uh, the redemption of your people. Uh, like Moses, we want to sing to your glory. We want to lift our voice, the fruit of our lips, in praise and worship as our jubilant response to your grace. We praise you, Yeshua, for what you've done in saving us. And we worship you for who you are. For you are our great and coming, soon returning king. As your word tells us, you, O oh Lord, are enthroned on the praises of Israel. You inhabit the praises of your people. Uh, our praise, you tell us, helps actually to bring in your presence in a powerful way. Uh, as we offer our modern day sacrifice, the fruit of our lips, which praise your name. Your spirit is present in true praise and worship through our covenant relationship with you, Yeshua. And so we thank you, Lord, that you are Adonai Yishmechama. You are the Lord, a man of war. You defend and you vindicate your people. One day you'll stamp out all evil uh, as you return, Yeshua, to establish your kingdom from Yerushalayim. And in the meantime, Lord, you command us to engage in spiritual warfare, to put on the full armor of God, to pull down strongholds in our imagination, to take every thought captive into your righteousness and your holiness, and to obey you, Messiah, in the fear of the Lord. So we thank you because you are a man of war. You can deliver us from the kingdom of darkness, and you bring us in the kingdom of your beloved Son, Lord. And so we worship you today in spirit and in truth. We pray this in your name, Yeshua. Amen. Amen. Shabbat shalom.